Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's episode of Right Millennial. Tonight we have a super special guest on the show. Um, this is super surreal to be seeing him across from me here on the Google Hangouts in the same spot that I've seen him interviewed on countless other shows. Um, I have been a fan of his for probably at least a year. His He has a sort of viral speech on YouTube called Why We Are Afraid, a 1400-year secret. You might have seen it. Um, tonight we have Dr. Bill Warner, who is the director of the Center for the Study of Political Islam. How are you? Delighted to be here, Stephanie. We're going to have fun. We will, because people like us find talking about the most depressing and confusing <laughs> topic actually uh, quite enjoyable. And I'm so thankful that you you came on the show. And I think a lot of my audience is pretty familiar with your work. But if you could just quickly break down how you got into this um, kind of weird area of study, what your background is. Well, I'm a 76-year-old man who started his study of Islam when I was 30 years old. I was interested in Sufism, mystical Islam. And so I studied Sufism for a while and found it intriguing. And then gradually, the more I looked into the corners of it, I was like, there's some dark shadows here. And so I drifted away. Then a couple of decades later, I was a professor at a university that had many Muslim students. I've always believed that a religion is an important component of character, personality, and hist history and everything else, civilization. So I started my study of Islam again, but this time reading the Quran cover to cover, which I had not done before. Then I read the life of Muhammad and I now went, ooh, Houston, we have a problem. So when 9-11 happened and I saw the second plane hit the second tower, I realized I lived in a nation that didn't know Sharia from Shinola, didn't know anything about Islam, couldn't tell a Sikh from a Muslim, from a Hindu, from a Buddhist. And so I decided that I would make Islam understandable. And my training as a scientist means that I like to understand the basic fundamental principles. And so I began to work on Islam, not for the purpose of impressing others, but in order to make the doctrine very easy to understand. And so to that degree, I've written several books, including a Quran. So that's how I kind of got into the business. And of course, once you write a book, what are you going to do with it? It just sits there on the shelf. And so I had to turn to the web to sell it. And by the way, the web used to be a wonderful place to sell things like on topics like political Islam. But lately, the, the sultans of Silicon Valley are beginning to come down on my neck and they'll come down on yours, too, if you don't play the game like they like it. Yeah, that, that kind of tends to be the way with these things. I mean, this 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 kind of career choice, and I mean, obviously, I do more than talk about Islam, but it's a huge part of what I talk about, is, is kind of a politically dangerous place to be. And I think that a large part of it stems from that utter ignorance that people actually have about Islam. And what I enjoy about your approach is I, I really like the way you break things down scientifically. You're the person who has you know, looked over and said, this percent of the Quran and Hadith refer to non-believers. This percent refers to this. This is what Muhammad was doing in every year. And I mean, that sort of way of breaking down Islam is so beneficial to me as somebody who kind of, I don't know, I, I take a bit of a different tactic, even though I have referred to your research many times, because it is so, it's unimpeachable from a, a scientific basis of what the texts say and what the life of Muhammad actually was. And I think that's so fascinating. Well, I felt somewhat, um, I'm a scientist by training. And so you always want to stumble into some corner of learning that hasn't been explored before. And as an old man, I've pretty much given up on that in science. As a matter of fact, I had completely given up on that in science. So then I wandered into the body of knowledge of Islam and discovered I was the first scientist who ever wandered around this wonderful garden. And so I was able to pick all the low hanging fruit. So I got to do the easy work and uh, hopefully many others will follow me. Because once you understand the principles of Islam, and let me dwell on this for just a moment, there's only two principles of Islam. 
Everything about Islam teaches Taweed, oneness of God. But what's interesting is all the oneness of God is implemented by two principles, submission and duality. When you start studying with the doctrine of Islam, the first thing you run into is everything is contradictory. It's like, well, wait a minute, this says this and this says that, and those contradict each other. So as a scientist, you go, which is the real one? Well, as I messed around more and more, messed around is a funny word for studying 12 hours a day on the subject, but we'd, we messed around with it. And then suddenly I realized the secret to Islam was to embrace the contradiction, not try to resolve the contradiction. And once you embrace the contradiction, you realize, well, there's this Islam and there's that Islam. They contradict each other, but they're both equally true. This is what I call dualism. Mm -hmm. And once you do this, the picture just kind of snaps into place then. That's actually been very quite parallel to some things I've come to realize about Islam. And I've, I've actually definitely heard you speak about the kind of concept of Islamic dualism, which I completely agree with. It makes perfect sense, right? This idea that Islam is a religion of peace and a religion of war that are they're actually both true, right? No, I mean, but it's kind of caca, but it's the way it, it works. But it's the way, they, the way that it works. And I guess through that actually helped with my kind of understanding of not just the teachings, but of the 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 greater kind of collective mindset of islam and how it, it makes people think things that are so outside of the way that really any other religion or non-religion i can think of sees them and i think this is this is you know as you're saying it's kind of low-hanging fruit as a scientist i feel like the same way it's kind of a it's really not that well explored of an area even from a kind of you know armchair psychology perspective to look at why do Muslims think as they do? What is it? How is it possible that any human person could, you know, behead a three-month-old baby or blow up their child? I mean, it's not pleasant to say these things, but if you don't understand the mindset behind this, you cannot understand what's happening. And that mindset comes from exactly what you're saying. It comes from these basic principles of Islam. Well, once you understand this, life becomes simple because if you want to know why a Muslim does anything, you look with either the Quran or the Sunnah of Muhammad. End of discussion. Mm -hmm. I like to say that people say to me, well, where did you study Islam? I said, I studied Islam from Dr. Allah and Professor Muhammad, because those are the only two places that one gets real knowledge. Those are the facts. Everything else, you may be a PhD from Al-Azhar University, but what you say is an opinion about Quran, Sirah, and Hadith. Sirah mm -hmm. is the life of Muhammad, the Hadith is traditions. And so, there are only two experts. And if you try to tell me something about why a Muslim does something and you don't include Muhammad or you don't include the Quran, you're not explaining to me why he does it really. Yeah, it's, it's really an opinion. I mean, of course, it kind of helps our point that the, you know, the vast majority of scholars have interpreted it mysteriously in the exact same way that we would by reading the text and actually looking at the most logical conclusion instead of trying to find this unicorn version of Islam that is not <laughs> actually there. You know, this idea that you can look at Islam and it could be anything you want it to be is very silly. Like you said, it kind of all ultimately, you know, whether a Muslim is in Somalia or New York, if they want to be devout, there will come a point where they, they can go directly to the doctrine, directly to the Quran and the Sunnah, and they will find the same thing because it's right there. I told you before we went on the air that I got a le an email from a man who's a former member of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. He studied with Alawaki. And he studied for 10 years, and what he wrote to me to say was that I understand the doctrine. But when you observe Morton's training, they did not start off training him as a jihadist with an AK-47. They started off training him with the Quran and the Sunnah of Muhammad. Mm -hmm. That's what all Al-Qaeda members and all Islamic State members do first. 
It's not become It's not like joining the Marines where you're going to be put out on a boot camp training. No, you're going to be you're going to sit in classes. You're going to memorize Quran. That is, you must first know the doctrine. What drives me crazy is the fact that we have military men and law enforcement officers saying they're going to deal with Islam, but they know nothing of the doctrine, which is like it's just blind and it's insane and it's nuts. But you have to know the doctrine before you can become a jihadist and you have to know the doctrine before you can understand jihad. No two well, words. This is exactly what brings me to, you know, today's little current event in New York. Very fortunately, nobody was killed and owned minor injuries. This could have easily been a 100 plus person murdered um, thing. Fortunately, the terrorist was incompetent. Um, but, you know, in talking about this, this this really underscores the reason that people like you and I talk about this 365 days a year, because terrorism is a tool to further the, the core of Islam, which is to, you know, large, make everything and everyone submit to Allah under Sharia, ultimately to become a Muslim. And we will we will then have peace because of, you know, the Dar al-Islam, the Islamic House of Peace, which, you know, is basically the same kind of peace that, well, the Soviet Union said it will all be peaceful when we're all communists. Right. But, you know, that's right. not the same peace. But if you can't understand why he did this, you're blind. It's one thing, you know, I, I don't I don't doubt that the military and law enforcement are capable of, you know, apprehending a suspect or stopping them from doing something. But when they don't understand the doctrine this person is following, it will never be sufficient. It will never stop this problem. I was talking with a, a veteran uh, of the army and he said back in the days when the Soviet Union was our enemy, he said, we not only studied the politics of the day as the soldiers, but he said, we also studied Marx. We studied Das Kapital. We studied the doctrine of communism. Why? Because you need to understand the mind of your enemy. And yet here we are, here's an example. General Stanley McChrystal, who served in Afghanistan under Obama, when he put his battle plan together and I saw a copy of it redacted. Redacted means there were no names and places mm -hmm. mentioned. There were three words that did not appear in the entire war plan strategy. Guess what they were? Islam, Islam. <laughs> Muslim, and Jihad. Those three words, then what is, do you realize that Afghanistan is now the longest war we've ever fought in? Wow, I actually didn't know that, but not surprising. Now, here's what's interesting. General Stanley McChrystal may not know the words Islam, Jihad, and uh, Muslim, Muslim. But if you talk to a staff sergeant who served in Afghanistan, he will know. I wrote a little essay one time, a newsletter called The Higher You Go, The Less They Know. And I've observed this in law enforcement. I've observed this in the military. The higher you rank, the less you profess to know about Islam. And I might add, it also works the same way in churches. The people who sit in the pews profess to know more than the pastor who professes to know nothing. That's what I call professional ignorance. Well, and absolutely. And this this problem being in, in at the highest levels of government and law enforcement and the military is, is striking. That's why I'm a big fan of um, those guys over at Understanding the Threat, because they try to educate from that perspective of understanding what the doctrine actually is. Like you need to define what the enemy is. You need to define what their motivations are. And, you know, we've done this with other ideologies and with Islam, we seem to just be like, to me, it's just kind of like playing whack-a-mole with how we treat terrorism. <laughs> it's just, okay, well, let's get ISIS. Let's get Al-Qaeda. Let's get the Taliban. Let's get Boko Haram. Let's get Hezbollah. Like that's what it's like. And it will never solve anything. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> you should, have you ever had John Guandola on your show? 
I am having him on. I've had Chris on my show. Um, Chris has actually uh, has actually become a friend of mine. Lo lovely guy. He was the one who you know um, went undercover to infiltrate uh, Care, which is of course actually Hamas. So yeah, great, great guys. <laughs> By the way, I have a prediction to make, or I'll tell anyone who's listening to us. If you Excellent. want to meet some people who by, are always compassionate, above average intelligence, and courageous, meet with anybody who's dealing with Islam, because all those three qualities are desirable. You have to be compassionate to care for others. You have to be brave enough to stand up against the government and the, and the sultans of Silicon Valley, Zuckerberg and his crew. And then you have to, I've left out one of them. Oh, and you have to be above average intelligence because it means you don't believe the crap they're shoving down your throat in the mainstream media. Yeah, and I'm happy to say I'm quite surrounded with a lot of uh, very smart, very compassionate and uh, very brave people, actually. I think that it's, uh, this this kind of kind of the generally you know kind of understood as the counter jihad i think it is growing i wish that it was more um common and i've, I've experienced in my own life um a lot of kind of personal pushback um from my own family from my friends for what i've said and i've continued to do it because i i believe strongly in doing the right thing and of course my my driving motivation is is not to just hate people my driving motivation is to promote freedom for everyone and you know human life being valuable. That is why I do this, right? It's not out of a place of hatred. But um, what have you kind of experienced in terms of, you know, implications in your personal and professional life for doing what you're doing so outspoken? Well, luckily, I'm an old man. I said I'm 76. I'm retired. <laughs> so I can't, I don't have a job to get fired from. Actually, I say I don't have a job. I haven't worked so hard <laughs> in my life since I became unemployed and, and, and professional at doing this. I mean, Although I don't work as much as I used to, I used to work a six and a half hour, six and a half day week, a twelve to fourteen hour day, and uh, particularly when I was just getting started. So, and I too have lost friends, or at least let's just say people who've drifted away; they're not interested. Uh, but I find that I have many more friends and associates and companions now than I did before, simply because I'm part of a very large community. And uh, oh, let me say something about the community, by the way. One of the things I like about you is doing this work is you're young. Thank you. <laughs> well, no, because my normal audience, particularly in starting, was gray hair. All right. I mean, I should look at me. And so, <laughs> so I'm, it's the nature of the business. So when I went to Europe, uh, because I, what happened was a gentleman by the name of Milan Polipny contacted me and said, could I, we put a center for the study of political Islam in Europe? And I went, uh, I guess. I didn't even own a passport, okay? I don't like travel. <laughs> so he went ahead and he did it. So now then I go to Europe once and twice a year. Now here's the good news about this. In Europe, my audience is young, mm -hmm. under the age of 40, all of them. Wow. And so I asked Milana, I says, why is this? Because my audience is in Central Europe, not Western Europe, but Central Europe, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech, Austria. And he says, we suffered under the Soviets. He said, my father was, was not allowed to go to college, to medical school, because his father was a merchant. And this man's uncle was killed by the KGB. He says, we have seen tyranny. Tyranny is not an abstract quality to us. He said, we see Islam as communism with a God. And he says, therefore, it is much more serious and much more frightening. So as a consequence, my audiences in Europe are, are young. They look like you. Wow, I mean, communism with a god is actually a very, uh, very apt way to describe Islam. I actually, I might use that. 
Um, no, I think I think it's really interesting. And I've actually been been told this by other people as well, that they're like, oh, you're actually really young, really trying to be involved in this. And I, I'm really at this point, really trying to study and get a deeper understanding. You know, I have people buying off my Amazon wish list that I have instead of a Patreon account. People have bought me, um, you know, Hadith collections and, you know, the reliance of the traveler and things like that, because I want to know these things from the sources and from you know, the, the early scholars and from their respected position, because I want to be able to fight against this and to have an answer when people say, well, but what about this, this verse that says that, you know, anyone who kills someone will be like, they killed all mankind. Hmm? Like I want to be able to have a good answer for these questions, but it's a, it's an unpopular thing. And I don't think there are a lot of people I'm 25. I don't think there are a lot of people in my age group, at least in um, Canada and the United States. And it, it's sad. I think, I think we've been very spoiled here to have not really faced any sort of tyranny. I say sometimes that America is suffering from too much money, too much power. And people look at me like, what do you mean? I says, you will see, those are not good for character. If I need to raise an army, I would not go knock on the doors in Bell Mead, which is the wealthy subdivision or part of Nashville, Tennessee. Instead, I would go to North Nashville where, where you have poor blue collar people. If you want warriors, you do better with people who do not have it all. That's sort of a strange point of view, perhaps, but I just find that people who have less are better at fighting for what they have. No, it makes it makes perfect sense. You know, I it's uh, I think that the the these kind of weird demographic issues within fighting this, I find that these things really interesting. And what sort of people actually are willing to listen to people like us on these sorts of things? It's 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 so interesting. I think you're right that in in countries like the United States, I find it's the older generation. And I wonder, I wonder if I'm right about this, if it's because of the older generation's kind of affinity for Christianity, where they, they see a religion that says Christianity is bad as inherently must be a bad thing. And therefore they're more willing to listen to the other criticisms of that doctrine. Do you think there's any truth to that? Ah, oh, let me talk about Christianity. <laughs> um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, which is called the buckle on the Bible belt. And the reason for that, it's an ideological name. I mean, it's a demographic name, actually, because uh, there are many churches in the South, and Nashville, Tennessee seems to have one on every fourth corner. Now then, you would think that such a environment would be difficult for Islam to expand in. There was a meeting of the Muslim Student Association at Vanderbilt University. It was for another purpose, but the head of the MSA, the Muslim Student Association, a Muslim Brotherhood organization, stood up and made the remark, that Islam had triumphed in Nashville, Tennessee, because now then even the fundamentalist churches accepted Islam as a valid religion. He says, all we need to do now is to continue to migrate and have children. We have won. Here's a man who's already declaring victory on the field, and yet he's just getting started. And what, the reason he can do this is, is that the churches in Tennessee, at least, and I can't speak for others because I haven't experienced them, have reduced their entire scriptures down to two syllables, be nice, and as a consequence, they spend all their time on being nice. And the pastor is professionally ignorant because if he knew the truth about things, he might not be so nice. So what we have here is, is that the Christians have, uh, they're too content and they're too dependent on social values, which is everyone needs to be liked. But look, I want to be popular too, but there are sometimes issues on which you have to take a stand on your morals and your basic fundamental principles instead of I want everybody to like me. I, mean, I do want everybody to like me, but sometimes I have to, as a professor, I had to grade papers. Now, if under the Christian theory of be nice, I would just give everybody an A. Well, that may work in some bizarre fashion in which every snowflake can't have his little 
flakes melted, but you need to actually, as a teacher, you need to actually grade the papers. You need to teach the subject and grade the papers. And the pastors in Nashville, Tennessee are, are not capable of doing that anymore. Now, let me be very clear here. I'm only condemning about 95% of them. No big deal. Just, you know, 5% are okay. No, I, well, I agree. Mean, there, no, there is a, there is a small mm-hmm. group which are like, they're really terrific, but it is a small group. The same is true for the Jews. I mean, it's, uh, when I first started working with this, I thought the Jews would be on fire about this issue because Islam is exceedingly clear about the Jews. Well, and we look at Israel on a literally on a daily basis, what they actually face in the kind of present world. Not This isn't a kind of abstraction for them, you would think. You would think. But once again, you would think. <laughs> think a lot of things. No, I think it's I think it's true. And I wonder if the kind of I feel like I definitely agree with you with the younger generation of Christianity and that, you know, this isn't even really an opinion about Christianity itself, but it certainly is a sort of it's an institution that you would expect to stand for human rights and human life being sacred. That that alone, at least you would think that that would matter to people. And I think you're right that to a lot of people, it doesn't. People are more content with um, showing love um, through just being nice and appeasing evil. And I don't think that that is the right way to go about things. I don't I, I do not operate from a place of hatred in my life or in what I talk about. I say it all the time. If I hated Muslims, I would be supporting Islam because Islam has destroyed so many kind of various cultures of various races. It has subjugated women. It has subjugated young boys. Islam has wreaked havoc on Muslim people. So if I hated them, I'd be supporting it. And but the thing is with loving other people, it does not mean that you always you don't it doesn't mean you appease their evil deeds and it doesn't mean you don't challenge them when they say something that you know is wrong. It means that sometimes you have to fight. There's something else here by the way. Sometimes I'm asked the question, why would someone join Islam? And I say for one there are many reasons to join Islam. Mm-hmm. One of which is Islam has some absolute strictures. There are some people who don't respond well to the openness of be nice and everybody's your friend and life is a bowl of cherries. Sometimes people need structure and Islam gives structure. The other thing it gives is it gives a difficult path. The United States Marines are the one branch of the services that always meet the recruitment goals. And what do they tell an 18 year old? They tell an 18 year old, we do the toughest, most dangerous, violent things in the world an 18 year old testosterone kicks in he goes yeah i want some of that just talking as a yeah and so the same thing happens with islam they have if you want to do something that's difficult they have a path for you and i think that many organizations including the schools and churches have all gotten too soft too easy and here we go again too nice I'm coming across like a grumpy old man, I guess. You're like, I hate everything. I'm mean to everyone. No, of course not. We all want to be <laughs> like, I think we can acknowledge <coughs> this, but still understand that, like you said, there are certain things that we cannot cave on because they are wrong. And we know they're wrong. And we must defend our civilization from people that wish to destroy it. And I think that's another thing that I think that leads people um, to Islam. And I know this because I've actually, um, I've been to a mosque. I've, you know, kind of been dragged into it. And I was a, I know I'm young now, but when I was an even younger person who was a total left-wing progressive, and now I'm obviously not, um, you know, and I, I could see the appeal in it because it had, it sounds so ridiculous and so vacuous, but there is this exotic appeal of kind of fighting the man. And, uh, you know, oh, right. well, I'm a part of this, you know, 
thing where look how exotic it is and people are mean to Muslims and look how cool and different they are. And I mean, it's such a, it's a ridiculous and often racist way of looking at things, right? Like look at these exotic brown people with their different clothes. I mean, it's a joke. And the idea that Muslims are minorities is ridiculous. Like in areas that Muslims control, they are not only a majority, they are often the only group. There is no better definition of the man than Muslims in Muslim countries. Well, by the way, I have an int- I have a t- let, let's introduce a term here, which I've, ent- which I've discovered in my study of the history of the growth of Islam, and that is this. I call it the law of Islamic saturation. Mm-hmm. Once Islam enters a society over enough centuries, notice centuries, that's another advantage Islam has. They use a calendar to keep time, and we use a watch. We use a watch, yep. I've heard that quote. And so what happens is, is that the nation becomes slowly, completely Islam. Take Turkey for an example. It used to be Christian nation, and now then it's only 0.3% Christian, and those numbers are dropping. So it's Islamic saturation. So this is the form of Islam as a civilization. It is the least tolerant of all kinds of things you can base a civilization on. Now here's what's peculiar. The multiculturalists love Islam, the monoculture. They love it. What is up with that? Well, yeah, that's the, that's the thing, and then 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 the women's convenient for them. It's oh well, this isn't anything to do with Islam. It's just different cultures. And I'm thinking Islam has a drive to create a monoculture. There were cultures in the area of the world that we now see as the Muslim world. There were many different cultures and different beliefs. Used to be it's very sad. Exactly, Afghanistan used to be Buddhist. I mean, look, think of you know the culture of Persia. Think of I mean, Egypt, Turkey. These were not Muslim countries. There are also cultures that have disappeared that people do not even know they exist unless you're writing a PhD dissertation about there are forms of Christianity that were annihilated by Islam. Let me give you a peculiar one which no one asks the question about. We were talking about Christianity earlier. Every first Christian was a Jew without a single exception. Jesus was a Jew, all the apostles were Jews, the disciples were, I mean they were all Jews and they became Christians which means there was a Jewish Christian church. You follow? What happened to that? It doesn't exist Let me anymore. Guess. <laughs> yes, Islam happened. Yeah, that's the thing. And the, the idea that we see this, you know, negative force as a good thing. And also this this arrogance. I was talking about this on the Periscope and you're earlier for anyone who's watching that. This idea that we have that this couldn't happen to us because our societies are so great. I mean, I find this so delusional. I mean, there were much stronger societies than ours that lost, let alone societies where we're talking about, you know, whether we have 24 genders or 72. You know, we're, we're busy with the most mundane, ridiculous things while this is going on. And we really, really think we are immune to this problem. I think that there are countries in Europe that are already so far gone that I'm not not sure it's redeemable actually they are redeemable if you're losing your war you need to see to fight the current war better or change the way you're fighting the war Islam can be defeated this is something very interesting by the way the Kafirs the non-Muslims tend to be prone to a form of discouragement as well England's gone now what's interesting is the Muslims never suffer from this because they're trained by their own scriptures that they will prevail they have an absolute optimism it doesn't work in this generation it'll work in the next generation and so then there's also scriptures within the Quran which talk about the lessons to be learned the only reason as a Muslim you're losing is you're not following all the Sunnah of Muhammad and you're not listening to the Quran so therefore in a strange way Islam is perpetually optimistic and yet we as Kafirs who I already hear people in the United States going it's all over now they're here they're gone we're gone it's like dude adopt a better the most important thing that a warrior has is his morale because without mm-hmm. his morale there's no reason to get out of bed in the morning 
And so I think that we need to be careful when we talk about things being gone because that is not the language of a winner. Here's the deal. Here's, here's one expression. Well, what are we going to do? Here's another expression. We'll do whatever it takes. No, I actually definitely agree with that. I definitely see your point there. I think that, you know, I mean, it's more that I think on the current trajectory that we currently have, there will be oh, yeah. a lot of strife to come. But if if we can actually start listening to people who know what they're talking about instead of listening to that nice Muslim, you know, in Brooklyn, you know, we, well, we might nice actually do something. Facebook. Hmm? Sorry? Listen to the nice talk on Facebook mm -hmm. or the other sources of nice talk. Well, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so... We're getting to where we don't want to hear hard luck. We don't want it not hard luck. We don't want to hear tough mm -hmm. subjects to discuss. And which is another thing that makes us weak, which is we have this whole trend within the universities, which is, well, now hate speech is when you offend a protected minority. Well, what if it's the truth? Facts don't have any meaning. What counts is how we feel. And if you offend somebody, then you are a bad person. You're a hater. By the way, your audience needs to know that I'm one of America's top racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobes, or at least so True. says the Southern He's on the list. I'm on the list. And by I the haven't way, made it on a list yet. It's, it's, it'll come eventually. Well, you keep it up, you will. And we do know now from somebody, there are little cracks within Google, and somebody that was a Google engineer gave out a training manual. And Google definitely maintains in their code for searching a blacklist. Here's what happened to me. I created the term political Islam mm -hmm. because I needed to separate Islam, the politics of it from the religion, because we'll never defeat the religion. It's not my business anyway. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to defeat political Islam. Now what has happened is since I coined the term six or eight months ago, if you Googled political Islam, I occupied the first three to four screens, 90% of the space. Now then if you, Google political Islam I occupy about a quarter of the first three screens. What happened to all that other stuff? Well, that's Google code, which includes the word blacklist. So the, the salt is the Silicon Valley, <laughs> a term I like. <laughs> so the problem with being on the blacklist is there's no way to get on it and there's no way to get off it. There's no due process. You can't show up with an attorney. You can't do anything. It's, it's a leftist organization which is a truly hate-filled organization whose purpose it is at first to just blacklist us but now then southern poverty law center has said more than once our purpose is now to drive people like bill out of business so this is what happens if you step over the line and the problem here is 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 that the web now is devoted to the same concepts we find in the university which is well, we can't offend any of a protected minority why not I mean, Stephanie, do you ever get offended when you get up in the morning and read the news? I'm offended every day. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm offended, offended every day. How do we get day. on the list if you can't be offended? I mean, it's it's just it's crazy, and I think that we just this idea that people have a right not to be offended. I think this this is Islam really it really tell it really tells a lot about the kind of mindset, right? Because you know, other religions have had to face you know scrutiny they've had to face mocking they've had to face you know people telling them that i think you're wrong and they've survived it where islam really has not had to face this almost at all because it, it's really only in the kind of post-ottoman era that they've had really that much contact with people saying your prophet was a pedophile and i'm going to draw him or whatever 
Right. You know, and then there's this this aversion to humor. I'll have these these followers who are having conversations with me and they'll say, oh, I'm Muslim, but I like talking to you because you're reasonable and you don't make personal attacks and whatever. And that's fine. I will talk to anyone. And and but even still, I'll, you know, I'll say certain things and I'll just be like, well, it's not just about criticism. It's when you attack my faith. And I'm just thinking like nobody else has this mindset. Right. Like none of my Jewish friends, none of my Christian friends, none of these people I know have this weird thing where you they have this visceral hatred for anybody actually making a joke about their religion. It, it's strange. By the way, I was raised in a very rural country in the uh, city, well, in a city. The, the county that I grew up in had okay. two traffic lights. Okay, I went to <laughs> grade school. So I, in a strange way, I was raised in a very rural set of civilization that's a, a century old. One of the things that you, to become a boy, to go become a man, there were two things you needed to be able to do. One was to work alongside men in the field, that was simple. And the other was you had to take a joke. You had to be kidded and you had to be ribbed and you couldn't get angry. You had to be able to return the, and the true mark of a friend was somebody you could insult with a smile and he would insult you back. That is, and then I, so humor is a very important part of having a very balanced personality to be able to laugh at the situation, to laugh at yourself, to laugh at your friends, to laugh at everything. I mean, we made fun of everything. And Keep so- Keep you sane. <laughs> It keeps you sane and it keeps your ego, our natural human egos down a little bit when my, you know, my followers will be like, oh, Stephanie, you're drinking wine tonight or something. You know, it keeps me, keeps me down to earth about things when I get very serious. But yeah, with Islam, and by the way, we have, uh, we have uh, from the Sarah and the Hadith, we, I wrote a newsletter one time called The Humor of Muhammad and the title was It Ain't Funny Muhammad because there were things in which Muhammad did find humorous. One of the ones was the head of his, he sent out an assassin to assassinate someone. He brought back the head of the man, threw it at Muhammad's feet, and Muhammad laughed so loud, with his mouth so wide, you could see his back teeth. So he enjoyed a good joke. It's just that we can't tell jokes about him. Well, that, that's oh, a hey. hilarious joke. I mean, that's great. That's the kind of humor. I mean, ISIS is so hilarious. <laughs> it's just something i have a couple questions from the chat as well if you don't mind me kind of sure. cutting in here on making fun of muhammad as he must be made fun of um someone said what is the best way to spread the word about political islam in the mainstream with people who don't want to listen ah in a well, nutshell i know <laughs> well here's what i do with people who don't want to listen if i'm with them in the same room is i don't tell them anything i ask questions there used to be something taught in logic called the Socratic method in which every attorney is used to this, in which you don't say what you know, you draw out what you want to be taught through questions. I remember one time a friend of mine who was a music writer, he was a musician and a writer, and he was very much of a liberal sort. And one day we were, he was at the house and I just kept asking questions. He, he left, he says, damn your questions, because I would put him in a difficult position. So there's, to deal with people effectively, you have to do several things yourself. From number one, you need to have knowledge, which means you need to read somebody about. And by the way, in knowledge, skip the Quran. Instead, read the life of Muhammad or the traditions of Muhammad, because you'll learn a lot more about Islam and it's a lot easier to do. And the Quran so is boring. <laughs> it's awful. I've it's read confusing. it several times. It's not fun. Well, it's, 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 it can be difficult to read. Although I, my Qurans that I, that I sell are quite easy to read. But moving on. So you need to have knowledge and you need to not try to just come up to somebody and once you have your knowledge, just what I call puke on your on their shoes. That is, Bleh! and Muhammad did this and blah, 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 blah. No, 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 chill, chill. 
So you need to ask questions that will lead them to ask questions of you that you know something. There's one last thing you can do. When you try to educate people, they will have arguments. One day I realized that I had heard all of the arguments that could be had. To, and so I sat down and put all the arguments in one little thin book called Factual Persuasion. And in it I listed. It's just like a catalog, uh, a seed catalog of questions in which you can go through. And, and for instance, the verse you quoted earlier, it is as though you killed all humanity if you kill one man. Well, that argument is in there. And so, number one, have knowledge. Number two, don't try to tell them everything. Draw out questions. And then be able, when they present arguments, which they've read in the mainstream media, it ain't this hard, that you can, in an easy fashion, give them the facts to come back with. And you also need to tell them that, it's, that once you start to learn Islam, I find it to be actually quite fascinating. Now, this may be just due to my strange personality, but I think okay. once you you're the same way. I am. I'm, I'm very interested. And otherwise, I couldn't do this because there are times it's very discouraging. <laughs> well, let me give you an example. One just popped into my head that I found interesting when I learned it. This has to do with a Muslim's relationship with his wife. And the most valuable thing that the woman brings to the marriage is her vagina. It just says this in the Hadith. I ain't mm -hmm. making this up. <laughs> and, then, and a man is to have access to his vagina, as it were, anytime he wants it, including there's a Hadith about this. Even if the wife is putting bread into the oven. I love that's oddly specific. <laughs> I mean, I, I, just, I, I just, I was like, this is an example where I thought that was interesting. That, you know, that, uh, that even if the, if even, if, so anyway, I find that Islam is interesting to study. I think the Hadith are like, there was used to be a potato chip ad in America called, I bet you can't eat just one. And when it comes to the Hadith or the traditions, I bet you can't read just one because once you read one, it's like, whoa, what else are they talking about here? And there's there's everything you know and then and then it's kind of the same thing if you watch kind of uh you know memory tv translated arab media like they're literally discussing you know the most obscure ridiculous things and it's just it's it's funny that these people really you know it's it's like this like insane version of judaism where they're they're concerned with you know the, these laws about well is it okay to you know commit anal jihad like that's an actual thing i thought this was a joke this is real <laughs> i mean it's it's i'm sorry to be so vulgar on the show but this is like no 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 i mean incredible. It's true. i know it's true. oh my and goodness my, you've mentioned a resource here which your audience if they don't if, before is memory m-e-m-r-i mm -hmm. middle east media something research institute i believe yes yeah. It is a wonderful source. You can look at somebody like me and Stephanie and go, what do they know? But when you're looking at an imam with a henna beard and the, 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 all the regalia, and he's from Al-Azhar University, and he's explaining to the audience, here is how the proper way to beat your wife is. It's like, what? And they're saying this on television in front of everybody. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, the account on Twitter there. It's the memory TV bot. And it's just these out of context statements. And at first I kind of thought it must be a joke. Like they're like changing the subtitles. No, no they're dead serious. They're literally talking about, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, needs to be killed in all instances that, you know, um, Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob is a Zionist spy. I mean, it's, it's deranged and I, I can laugh at it. It's, it's, it's like, I may be also a weird personality. I can find humor that people actually believe these things. But it also is a really interesting insight into the mind. That's that's definitely a resource. And this is one one point I want to bring up too, is you know when someone like you or I are talking about this, you know we might be like, oh, I would love to sit there and read the hadiths or read these you know Islamic law texts and things like that. But I don't. I think I think we make a mistake when we, um, you know, people watching this, we make a mistake when we think that we need to know everything about Islam to no. know anything. You don't. You know, you don't need to know 
every single, you don't need to be a scholar to beat these, like you said, mainstream media arguments that you've heard 10,000 times that there are answers for if you look for them. I'll give you an example. The Life of Muhammad in its original source, I can looking up over my desk and seeing it is an 800 page book. I produced a version of it, which is only 80 pages. This book is written so that a sophomore in high school can read it. That is what I wrote it for. Now, this is a book in which a man is born poor, an orphan. He becomes a businessman successful. Then he becomes the prophet of Allah. And when he dies, he's the ruler of all of Arabia. It is a ripping good read. It is a fabulous read. So what I'm trying to say here is, is that you don't need 80 pages of Muhammad is really all you need to know in a style that's, and by the way, when I say it can be read by a sophomore, I paid a sophomore 20 bucks to read it and ask her a bunch of questions about it. And it was like, cause so what I'm saying is, is that it is, you don't need to study the whole thing. You know, you don't need to read the Quran. I say to people, do not study the Quran first, study Muhammad first. And really what you want to do is read his life. And like I say, it's, it's really a, it, there's spies, counter spies, executions, assassinations, plots, schemes, secret agents. It is a good read. And that's all you need to know. Everything else follows from Muhammad. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me do a quick statistical analysis here. There are three books that are the Islamic Bible, Quran, Sarah, Hadith. The Quran is only 14% of the textual doctrine. That means Muhammad is 86% of the textual doctrine, which just confirms what I said. You want to know Islam? Skip over Allah, skip over the Quran, read the life of Muhammad. Done, you're over. That's all you need to know. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I, I kind of try, I want to take it to a deeper level because I want to know the, the kind of why and intricacies. But I, I, I think that when people think that they have to have this kind of weird dork interest like I have in order to be part of the counter jihad movement, that no. I think that no, you don't. You have to know these these basic basic things. I do. I do. I will say that there is a certain aspect to this. Like as you said, with asking questions, I think it is important to know the sort of questions to ask. Um, and you know, because because I'll hear people say these things. I'm like, well, this poll shows that most Muslims condemn terrorism, and I'm like, well, how did they define terrorism? Because you know, killing me as a kufar is not terrorism. Um, raping women is not terrorism. Taking sex slaves is not terrorism to them. Right. So you and need not only that. Not only that. Forget the Muslims, study Islam. Mm -hmm. There's one and a half billion Muslims, plus or minus who knows what. Something like that. <laughs> so one half, if you're gonna study Muslims and to, to derive what Islam is, you're gonna to have to sample one and a half billion people. Forget that, study Muhammad, study the one Muslim who counts because Muslims are just like Rotary Club members, Christians, and people who go to, there's all kinds of them. And most of them, by the way, do not know that much about Islam. As a matter of fact, there's even a verse in the Quran which says, do not ask difficult questions. Now, when a scientist, as a scientist, and that's repeated in the Sharia, as yep. a scientist, when I saw the phrase, do not ask difficult questions, I go, well, what questions do you ask? Yeah, dumb questions, like what did Muhammad eat for breakfast? Like what was this camel's name? Like that's very silly. Um, you know, I think it's uh, it's true, you know, and that that's why I'm very... Um, I didn't go to Muslims to learn about Islam, right? Because if I had just gone to, you know, the Quilliam Foundation and heard Majid Nawaz's unicorn interpretation of Islam, I think I might, you know, you could have been like, sorry, sorry, Majid. 
Um, but you know, if, if I were to do that, that gives you a position or I wouldn't ask if ask a person who I've met who's Muslim, what their religion teaches. You have to see what the sources say. And then from there you can move outward. And this is why I was wondering your opinion on the kind of very strong growing movement of ex-Muslims, because I have a lot of ex-Muslim friends and I've really kind of been kind of welcomed into that community as an ally, though obviously I'm not an ex-Muslim. And I think that the insight into the mindset of people who have, especially converts who have gone from being a normal person like you or I to believing in absolutely insane things, cheering on 9-11, believing Jews are evil spies, you know, like it, it's really, it's really interesting actually. Well, I lost my train of you. You you said something. Sorry, my you. question. <laughs> Sorry, I just I talked. My question, I guess, was just, what do you think of the kind of rise of ex-Muslims kind oh, of joining okay. the counter jihad? Yeah. I think that the ex, the, the apostates, as I call them, yes. are our secret weapon. There has never been a time in history when an apostate would stand up and profess his apostasy, and yet what we find now is is this is happening. And I, th I would love to see a political leader in the United States who would make it very clear that all apostates of all religions, but Islam in particular, are protected by our government. Because here's what they, it's very difficult when you're talking to an apostate to say, well, you don't understand Islam. I mean, he got Islam in his mother's milk. And so therefore, you, they, and also they can teach you the parts about how it really works. Exactly. You know, most people just read the brochure. Okay, they don't actually take the trip. Well, sometimes the trip is not what the brochure promised. And as a matter of fact, that's what every apostate says. So now it's difficult to become an apostate from Islam because the in Islam, you're more of a member of a community than you are just a member of a church. I mean, if you drift away from a church, there's nothing that happens. But if you drift away from Islam, and particularly if you become critical of Islam, the community can turn on you. And to a Muslim, the community or the Ummah is an important part about being a Muslim. So part of the strength of Islam is its community. And by the way, that's one reason that people join Islam is that they have a community, a persecuted community that you can feel good about being persecuted and righteous that you're doing God's work. So the apostate is an important historical development. There's also another historical development. It has never been possible in human history for the ordinary person to know what the doctrine of Islam is. So our two secret weapons are apostates and the fact that the knowledge of Islam has now been made available to the average high school student. So how this will play out, we don't know, but it is something that's never happened in the human history. Yeah, I've, I've had that conversation with a lot of my um, ex-Muslim friends that the, the internet, first of all, is such an incredible way to spread information. Of course, you have countries like Saudi Arabia, which will block certain websites and this, but there are ways that these things can get out there. People can crowdsource books and documents that are English into Arabic from, you know, critics of Islam. And there are ways that these things can happen. And of course, you know, apostasy and being an outspoken ex-Muslim, I think we need to defend these people. I think we need to stand up for them instead of this bizarre thing the left does where they stand up for Islamic theocrats instead of standing up for people who, hey, I don't want to wear a hijab. I don't want to be part of this religion. I want, you know, I want to be gay without being murdered. You know, like these people that are actually being persecuted instead of their, you know, their oppressors. Um, and I think that we can, we can actually do something on that level. And I think that that in, internal knowledge is, like you said, it's kind of a secret weapon, right? Because when I say it or you say it, they, they can, I mean, it's not a legitimate argument, they can say, well, you've never lived it. Well, I have friends who have lived it. I have many friends who've lived it, and I have friends who have risked their lives in Muslim countries to tell the truth, even though that there are, there are places where you can be killed for this. It's not oh. an easy thing. Killed or, for instance, Noni Darwish, if you ever met her, 
She's a, a what I'll call a famous apostate. And uh, by the way, it's interesting sometimes to ask apostates what tripped, what triggered their first crack mm -hmm. in their belief. With her, it was when she saw in a Life magazine a wedding, a Christian wedding, and when she saw the bride who was like a queen for the day, she was like, "Oh, I want to be I want the bride. that. <laughs> I want that." But anyway, she, she's an apostate. And what happened to her was she was not threatened with death when her father said, never call me, never write me, never come see me, do not see my, your, your mother, do not see your brothers and sisters, you are dead to us. Well, this is kind of a difficult thing. I mean, like, unless you hate all your family, so it's difficult to leave and you, there is a price to pay. But one of the things, since I live in a, such a Christian town, I tell pastors is you should bring the apostates into your church so that they will tell you the truth of the matter particularly those apostates who have converted to Christianity because they bring fresh eyes and they're courageous people. These are people who are truly courageous. So anyway, um, that's how I feel about apostates is they're a wonderful thing. I'm glad the first victim of Islam is the Muslim. So the first thing I'm glad about is, is that they're free. By the way, there's a well-known apostate in Canada, which I think you say you're in, which is Sandra Solomon. Have you met her? I have heard of her. I haven't had her on the show or anything, but I know who we are speaking about. I think I've heard her talk to you, actually. Anyway, you should have her on the show. She's a wonderful Maybe person. I will message her. <laughs> she sounds great. I had um, um, Yasin Muhammad is another Canadian ex-Muslim. She's um, She was actually married to a member of Al-Qaeda and found this out from the Canadian intelligence services. Um, she had no idea. This was after her mother uh, kidnapped her. Basically, she, he took, she took her to um, Egypt and left her there and tried to force her to marry her cousin and all these crazy things. And these, these people have these, these different stories. And this, this is the thing, too. I think that they kind of remind us that, you know, I'm all about, I, I'm more interested in Islam than Muslims. And I know you take the same, the same view. I'm interested in Muslims when it comes down to a specific pinpointable thing. For example, Muslims are committing terrorism because of Islam. I think that's a legitimate statement. But, you know, the, I also think that ex-Muslim or apostates is a better term for it show us the humanity of muslims as human beings because when now when i think i see this muslim who is so extreme and indoctrinated and then i see my friend jen sutton who got who you know she admits that she cheered on 9 11 she admits that she believed the jews were behind everything she admits all these insane beliefs and yet she broke away from it you know and she's you know a dear friend um actually i'm not even i'm not even sure what her exact like turning point was actually that's that's really interesting maybe i'll have to i don't know she might be watching this if you are hi jen <laughs> she's she's on the show pretty often so maybe we'll have to talk about that specifically by the way you've mentioned the term freedom freedom is not a word that really appears inside of islam no. freedom is considered slavery to the sharia if once you become the perfect slave of sharia you will find perfect freedom freedom is called has another word in arabic called fitna which is confusion Wow. And so anyway, what we prize so highly, we need to be clear here. These are two separate civilizations and there is no way to compromise between the two. Our civilization is based on the ideal of the golden rule where do unto others, which others, all others, that is, we're to all treat each other as equal as human beings. And yet Islam has no, you treat someone depending on whether they're a woman, a man or an apost or apostate or a Kafir, which is a non-Muslim. So, Therefore, the legal, their, their ethical system is dualistic. There is no bridge between a dualistic ethical system and a unified ethical system, which is the golden rule. And our, we have our intellectual cornerstone of critical thought and the intellectual basis of Islam is authoritative thought. There's no compromise between these. 
So people who think that there's some multicultural world in which the Kafir and the Muslim will live very contently and happily side by side, not only does history deny it, but the very doctrine of the civilization denies it. We're involved in a civilizational war. Our civilization is being attacked by another civilization and very successfully, and it has been done so for 1400 years. But we're very different. We are, and these, there are certain things that cannot be reconciled. You know, that there, this is the thing that I have, and I guess this is why I'm such a person who is so critical of this idea of reform, that I find the, the concept of reforming Islam to be, you know, if, if, if there was a way that you can basically remove these core things from Islam, remove Sharia, remove Muhammad being perfect, you know, if you could really just create this unicorn Islam, it's, I mean, that'd be nice, but the idea I'm all that... For it. Yeah, I'm all for it. And, and if, if there's a way to create the religious aspects of Islam, I have nothing wrong with people praying five times a day or giving a certain amount of charity or whatever the Islamic, you know, I mean, of course you hear way more about political stuff. They want to go to Mecca once, you know, once in a lifetime. Those sorts of things are, are really of no consequence to me. I don't think they're harmful. But I think that to do this, the problem I have with the reform movement as it is, is that I think it, it really actually helps Islam because it convinces the left who are already so ignorant of this that, well, I don't have to worry because Majid Nawaz is dealing with it, even though no one supports him, even though if he went to a Muslim country, he'd probably be killed. Yes. And I hope this never happens, but this is not, reform is not happening. It's never happened. There is, Islam is a monolithic ideology for the most part, except like you said, like Sufis and the Ahmadis to some extent, those sorts of small fringe groups. But they don't, they don't follow all the doctrine. Exactly. What people mean by reformation is, well, why don't you just ignore Muhammad in Medina? Why don't you just ignore the jihad? Well, how can you ignore what is, Allah says is the highest goal? So you can't, you cannot reform. Islam is not reformable. That's like saying, you know, triangles have sharp corners on them. And so we're going to reform the triangle so it doesn't have sharp corners. Well, you may have reformed the triangle so it doesn't have sharp corners, but it's no longer a triangle. Hello. Exactly. I had a great, I saw a great tweet today. Um, do you know who Lalo Degach is? And I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. He does a great podcast and he talks to a lot of, you know, um, ex-Muslims and, dissidents and stuff and he uh he he said this great tweet he said it's unrealistic to think that we we could convert millions of uh communists to capitalism what we need to do is reinterpret uh, the communist manifesto to make it a capitalist document i mean to me that's exactly as ridiculous right these these things are fundamentally opposed to each other when you have islam within its own internal structures talk to any reformer i have i think i have i don't think i've ever met one who will say when the Quran says to, you know, give someone a hundred lashes for adultery, it is wrong. Or when Muhammad beheaded 600, called for the beheading of 600 people, it was wrong. Or raped a nine-year-old girl, it was wrong. They will never say it was wrong. They'll say it didn't happen or that you're interpreting it wrong. But they will never just say, the Quran says this and it's wrong. And I think that, that if you can't say that, it's, it's pointless. It's not going to do anything. You must be able to abjure, that is, to deny the truth of it. And you're right. That's that. That is that. Not as do you not practice jihad. Sure. You tell me that Muhammad as a jihadist was wrong. That those were acts of evil. That's you want. That's the kind of statement you want. But Which I don't get. Islam, <laughs> you don't. You don't get. And no, Islam is not reformable. By the way, I wish that it were. Me too. But a careful, but a careful study of its intellectual underpinnings just says you can't do it. I mean, how are you going to change a Quran which is perfect, universal, and eternal? How do you change that? If you take something away from it, it wasn't, it's now no longer perfect. And if you add something to it, then it was not complete. So you, it, it just doesn't work. It's like I say, it's like trying to reform triangles so they don't have corners. I mean, it simply is not possible. It's not a logical process. 
No, I would agree with you. So on that note, before we finish up here, I was just wondering what what your kind of solution is, or if you don't have a solution, what you think the outcome is going to be over the next little while, based on what you know of Islamic history. Well, things just keep on keeping on, by and large. And then, but here's the thing: if you study history, history is not a linear affair. Muhammad's life was not a linear affair. That is, it goes in straight lines, and then all of a sudden, it snaps and does something else. I give you an example of a snap, which was 9-11. So I can say, if we keep on keeping on, it's just gonna keep on doing what it is now, which is we will become more and more confused, more and more Muslims will emigrate, and we'll become dumber and dumber. But it will not stay that way, and I do not know what it will be, but what will happen is, is that people will slowly begin to realize we cannot pussyfoot around with this anymore. This is a serious problem. And once we decide to deal with it, we can. But right now, our political correctness is our biggest enemy. We have two enemies. The near enemy is the apologist for Islam, and the far enemy are, is Islam. It is the near enemy that we must defeat, the New York Times, the uh, NPR. That is the true enemy. The near enemy is the one that's killing us. The political correctness is, I mean, just disgusting. So, by the way, I'm, uh, you may have noticed I'm probably not what you'd call a politically correct person. No, me neither. I just had a whole periscope where I said that, you know, we can deal with this peacefully or will inevitably there will be people who will deal with this in a very a way that none of us wanted to be dealt with. But I think the idea that there is a situation in which, you know, we just, well, we just all continue, la-di-da, and it'll all work out is not going to happen. Nope, nope, nope. We'll nope, be dimmies nope, nope. or we'll be, yeah. One day we have to realize that we have something very precious given to us by our ancestors, which was a wonderful civilization, which has its flaws, but it has a method for correcting those flaws. So when we wrote the U.S. Constitution, it allowed slavery, but the application of the golden rule over a period of time meant that, look, nobody wants to be a slave, so we'll eliminate slavery as a civil right. So we, we have a system which is flawed but improvable. We have a system with Islam which is not improvable. You can't fix it. We just, it's, it's put together in a way we'll never fix it. Well, yeah, that's the thing. And people will be like, oh, well, look at this time. And I mean, first of all, most of the times that people say Islam was peaceful is usually a complete fantasy. I mean, it was, it was maybe a bit more controlled and a bit more, you know, set to certain areas. And, you know, the, there wasn't, you know, terrorist bombings in New York, but it was never peaceful. I would say the best we've ever gotten with Islam is a suppressed Islam or an impotent Islam. It's, it's never been peaceful. No, it, is not, it is inherently not peaceful. Look, Muhammad had, when in the last nine years of his life, he participated in 95 acts of jihad in nine years. Violent jihad. That is the perfect human being. That is the perfect Muslim. Now, how do you transform a man who committed 95 acts of, of uh, assassinations, slave taking? I mean, how do you, it's not doable. And we have to realize that we have to reject it. We don't have to reject Muslims, but we do have to reject Islam. Absolutely. And I think that's that's what I speak to all the time. And I mean, you've said this as well yourself, that Muhammad was an incredible figure in history. When you look at what he accomplished, I mean, I see him and I just think, OK, this just this guy wanted, you know, money, power, wives, notoriety. And what he actually created was an incredible kind of existential threat that is going on 1400 years strong. I mean, it's um, it's, it's actually pretty insane when you think about it he created a new form of war civilizational war it wasn't kinetic war it is war that involves sex food clothing everything religion taxes it included everything he was the most incredible genius of war that has ever existed 
Caesar, no one dies for Caesar anymore, Napoleon or Alexander the Great, but someday, today, somewhere, someone always dies because of Islam and his concept of civilizational war. Well, on that very cheerful topic, um, we are just coming up on the hour here. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been uh, so fun for me as a fan of yours for a long time. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. And as I can tell by the very live, everybody else read it as well. So thank you so much, Dr. Warner. Oh, thank you. You're a fun interview. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I will, I will be definitely uh, keeping in touch and watching what you're doing at the with your studies because I think it's fascinating. And hopefully I'll be picking up some of your books soon. And I think maybe I'll just, you know, shove them at my family because they're a little more readable than my, uh, you know, it's articles and interviews and rants. So. Right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so good much. Night. Have a good night, guys. Take care.